Thank you. Very, very quickly before we get started, I sent out a lesson uh, schedule back in September. It looks something like that. It's got the, uh, the lesson number and the date and the uh, passages to be studied. Hopefully everybody got that. If you don't have it, let me know and I can email it to you. I also sent out something that looks like that. Not only does it have the lesson number and the date that we're supposed to be studying that lesson, but it has a listing of the events as they happen, and this is supposed to be in chronological order as best can be determined. And also it has a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John column, so you can see those passages, and it'll help you a little bit to learn to, uh, where to go to see the different uh, accounts of the same events. Uh, now, I'd, here's another, this is a Microsoft Word document that I created, and it actually has a column for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, it has the events as listed in the previous document and the actual scripture. Now, I, I didn't send that out. If anybody would like to have that, to kind of help you study, it makes it really easy to compare one uh, account, you know, Matthew's account with Mark's and Luke's and so forth. If you'd like to have it, just let me know, send them an email or a text or something, and, and I can e email that to you, and it, maybe that'll help you in your studying and preparing for the class. We were just finishing up <clears throat> just a couple of items in lesson, in lesson number two. Uh, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and we saw that, uh, of course, he would be in the Jordan River. Uh, and uh, we saw that the Pharisees uh, had hearts of flint. The, uh, the miracles and the teaching and all that Jesus was doing didn't seem to affect them in the least, other than to make them even more determined than ever to put him to death, to get rid of him. And so in John chapter 11 and verse 54, it says, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a place called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So Ephraim would be north of Jerusalem, uh, up near where Bethel, if you remember where Jeroboam put the golden calves and Dan up to the north end, and in Bethel, this would be fairly near Bethel, north of of Jerusalem, and it's where he was for a short time. Then we're going to switch back to Luke chapter 17. So you might turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll be there for at least a few minutes. And uh, as we continue through, we'll be moving from one book to another, probably spending most of our time uh, in Matthew. But currently we'll be in Luke chapter 17 there, beginning with verse 11. So it tells us in verse 11 that Jesus had moved from Ephraim further north up until the borders of Samaria and Galilee. So the way it's written, it's hard to say exactly, but some think it's in between. You know, it's Judea, then Samaria, then Galilee, and that he was up in the border between Samaria and Galilee for a little while. So that's where he is in Luke 17 and verse 11. And there he encounters 10 lepers. And of course, all of this is, is, is recorded for a number of reasons, but, but there's lessons to be learned from each one. So he, he heals these 10 lepers and they go on their way rejoicing, but just one of the 10 turns around and comes back 
and, uh, and speaks to Jesus and uh, basically thanks him for what he has done for him. And so uh, what I see in that lesson really is just a lesson about gratitude. Uh, I'm uh, already forgetting to, to advance this thing. Somebody raise their hand if I don't advance it. And I'll say, <laughs> uh, what I saw in, in that was just a lesson about gratitude and I put some, some passages here uh, that just came to my mind when I'm thinking about everything that we should be grateful for. Uh, James 1 and verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So every good thing in your life, guess where it comes from? Should we be grateful of that? for that? Of course. And a, and a verse I love is 1 John 3 and verse 1. Uh, Behold what, lo what the love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are think we should have gratitude for being able to call upon our creator. We're just made of the old dust of the earth, and he's the most powerful, highest authority there's ever been or ever will be, and he allows us to call him our father. Should we be grateful for that? I, I think so. I thought about 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. We've been redeemed, he said, not by things, physical things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Think about when we partake the Lord's Supper. Uh, any number of emotions might be in our thoughts and our hearts. Uh, maybe sadness. You know, we're sad that our Savior had to suffer so much because of our sin. Uh, love for our Savior. Uh, uh, joy in our salvation. But I think gratitude Gratitude probably should be right up near the top of the list that when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, should be a lot of gratitude in our hearts. And I think that's what this short little discourse about these 10 lepers are teaching us, that one had enough gratitude to come back and speak with Jesus. And it turns out, of course, he was a Samaritan. And of course, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews and vice versa, but there's a lesson for us there. Any comment about gratitude? Going to try to move fairly quickly, but if you've got a comment, raise your hand and we'll, we'll take the time to stop and hear what you have, have to say. So he, Jesus is still, he's up in the area of Samaria and Galilee and some, some Pharisees, seems like Pharisees are everywhere he goes, and they had a question for him. This is uh, Luke 17 and verse 20. Uh, I've been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God is coming. And he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here, look, it's there, here he is, or there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is, is in your midst. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the Pharisees were still looking upon the kingdom just like the apostles and everyone else of the day. They were thinking that the Messiah would ride into town at the head of his army and would defeat the Romans and set up a palace in Jerusalem and rule from there and everything would be right visible in front of you. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. It's not, it's not going to be coming with signs that you can see it's going to be in your midst. The New American Standard words it that way. And I take that to mean that... Uh, Jesus uh, rules in our hearts. It's not something visible out here, a visible kingdom like what they were used to. Put a few passages here about the church and the kingdom. Of course, we know 
that the church and the, and the kingdom are one and the same thing. Uh, in John chapter 18, a little later in our study, we'll see that Jesus talking to Pilate said, my kingdom is not of this world. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, there Jesus talking to his, his apostles and uh, he, he used the church and the kingdom interchangeably. He said the, uh, the gates of, I will, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. So he's using church and kingdom there sort of interchangeably. Um, in Ephesians 2 and verse 19, talking to Christians, he said, we are fellow citizens. Well, if you're a citizen, you've got to be a citizen in some, something, right? Well, it's the kingdom, of course. You're a citizen in the kingdom. Philippians 3 and verse 20 tells us our, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not recorded down at, at the courthouse here in Rutherford County. It's recorded in, in heaven. Um, Colossians 1 and verse 13, we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So every Christian then has been translated into the kingdom, but this kingdom, as he says, is not of this world. It's not that kind of kingdom. Any comments there? So in verse uh, 22, Jesus turns his attention then to his disciples. And he says, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there. He says, don't, uh, do not go away and do not run after them. He said, that there are going to be some days coming. <clears throat> and, and in verse 25, it's going to be after. He, he's going to have to suffer some things first. And there are going to be some days that will be difficult, and you're going to long for me to be back here with you. And that day will come, but he said, if somebody's telling you, uh, look, look, he's over here, or look, he's over there, you know that that would be a false messiah there. And the reason you will know that is because when I come again, he says, everybody's going to see me. In uh, verse 24, it says, for just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to another part of the sky, so the Son of Man be in his day. Revelation 1 and verse 7 tells us that when he returns, every eye will see him. So when he comes, it, uh, if someone is saying, well, Jesus came, but he's over here or he's over there, then you, you know that's not true because you didn't see him. When he comes, you'll know it and you'll see him and so will everyone else. So don't be deceived. In our lifetime, you can remember there, there have been men who claim to be the Messiah. And we know that they weren't. And one of the reasons we know that they really weren't was because we didn't see him come. Every eye didn't see it. And he goes on to say that uh, when he comes again, it's going to be like other passages say, like a thief in the night. It's going to be when people don't expect him. He used the example of when in the days of Moses, uh, when God put Moses and his family in the ark and closed the door and it began to rain. Everybody else in the world, they were just going about their normal walks of life, marrying, giving in marriage, plowing the South 40, uh, eating and drinking, and, and, and then came the flood right in the midst of them doing all their normal everyday things. There was, there was not that kind of a warning. They could say, okay, it's coming tomorrow, it's coming next week, it's coming next year. 
there won't be signs like that. He also used the example of uh, in the days of Lot when God rained fire and brimstone down on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the same lesson. So let's, let's not be deceived then by people who are talking about signs and things, but we'll talk uh, a good little bit more about that when we get to Matthew chapter 24. Any comments or questions about Luke 20, or 17, 22 through 37? All righty, let's go to lesson three. This is where we're supposed to be last week. <laughs> lesson three. This, uh, uh, we're still in Luke, Luke chapter 18. Parable of the persistent widow, and really we're going to put two of them together here. The parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge, and also about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. So uh, both of these parables are about that one subject. It's about prayer, right? That's what this is all about. And so Jesus begins again talking to his disciples. He says, and he said to them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Uh, I think sometimes uh, we think God is, is kind of like the microwave oven. You pop something in there and hit the button and in just a couple of minutes it's all done. And so when we pray, God is supposed to answer that prayer but but God's not on our timetable is he he's not on our timetable so he doesn't always that God answers the prayers in fact I, I've got there uh, James 1 and verse 6 we need to pray in faith James says if, if you don't have faith that God's going to answer then he won't answer you you got to pray with faith but we know that sometimes sometimes God's answer is no you remember Paul prayed about the thorn in the flesh. You remember that? What was God's answer? Not going to remove it. Why did God not remove the thorn in the flesh? Our faith is sufficient. So he knew that it was better for Paul to keep the thorn in the flesh. And so his answer was no. And sometimes we don't always know what to pray for. And sometimes God's answer to us will, will, will be no. Uh, sometimes it'll be yes, but his yes may not be when we want it to be answered, and it may not be in the way we want it to be answered. I thought about, I got Habakkuk verse 1 there. You remember Habakkuk lived in a time when uh, a lot of evil in Jerusalem, just as evil as it could be. And so he prayed and he said, Lord, I... I can't stand this any longer, paraphrasing. I just can't stand this much longer. How long are you going to put up with this, Lord? You, you seem like you've put up with it longer than you ought to. When are you going to do something about this? And God said, well, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to bring these Babylonians down, and we're going to destroy this place. And Habakkuk went, whoa. You know, that's not exactly what I meant here. That kind of scared him. But uh, he said, those, those people are even more wicked than we. And God said, well, I'll, I'll take care of them too. So God answered the prayer. But it wasn't exactly in the time and in the place that Habakkuk had in mind. But God will always do it in the right way and the best way and in his time. And sometimes in situations like that, we got to understand too that, that God gives the wicked time to repent. 
he does that. We forget that sometimes. We want the wicked just to be destroyed right now. And we got to remember that Jesus came to save and not to destroy. And sometimes that could be why God would postpone answering, answering a prayer. Another thing about prayer is that uh, it needs to be prayed with humility. Put on the PowerPoint there, Nehemiah chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 4. Any idea why I would put that in this lesson about prayer and humility? <laughs> Daniel and Nehemiah, they, they were uh, very righteous and God-fearing men. But when they prayed, it was nothing like the Pharisee. You know, the next parable there down about... Uh, verse 11, the Pharisee, uh, paraphrasing again, he's just saying, Lord, you're, you're awfully fortunate to have a good man like me to serve you. Look at all I do for you. That was his approach to prayer. But the uh, publican, the tax collector, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think if you turn to Nehemiah and to Daniel there and read those prayers, that's the kind of prayer you'll see. A prayer of faith, but uh, humbly, humbly prayed to God for his help. And so those are the things that we need to, to have in mind when we pray. Uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter, what is it? Uh, is it chapter 5? He said, uh, pray without ceasing. So the, the idea is, is to not give up, not to lose heart but to pray regularly and to pray with faith and to pray with humility, with the confidence that our God answers prayer. The, uh, the first parable where the, the widow came to the unjust judge, so he didn't have regard for God or man. He, he didn't care if the widow had justice or not. He just didn't care. But she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And he said, she's just going to wear me out if I don't do something. So he gave her justice. And, and he goes on to say, and will not God give justice to his elect if this unjust judge will do that? What do you think about a just and a loving and a kind and merciful God? We, we continue to pray and not lose heart. Pray with faith. Pray with humility and with complete confidence that, that God will hear our prayers. Any, any uh, thoughts about, about prayer? I was thinking about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so there's another lesson about prayer. We can't just go and live our lives like the devil and then turn to the Lord and expect him to answer our prayers under those circumstances either. And really that kind of behavior is, is not humility, is it? If I'm gonna live my life the way I want to and then I'm gonna ask you to bless me, there's not much humility in that. I also thought about Second uh, Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, and it reads something like this. 
It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Think about that. It's, it not only does it, but he's looking to and fro in the earth. And he's looking for those whose heart is completely his so he can answer their prayers. And he can, he said, not just support, but strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So when we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer, then we need to go with our, our hearts given to him and complete confidence that he hears and that he will answer our prayers. Maybe not in our time frame and maybe not exactly the way we want it to be, but he answers prayers. Any comments there? Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 19, going from Luke to Matthew. So now, uh, actually in, in chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus has gone from Galilee now back over east of the Jordan River again. You remember that map that we had up uh, in the previous weeks. So he's, uh, he'd been quite a bit of time east of the Jordan, and now he's back over there again. And, and from this point, he will travel south and eventually cross back to the uh, west side of the Jordan River uh, to Jericho, and some things will take place there, and then he will begin his final journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. So by this time, we're just weeks, just a few weeks away from his crucifixion. So Matthew chapter 19, beginning verse 3, Pharisees asked Jesus some questions again, and their, uh, their questions were intended. They were, had an earnest and honest heart, and they really wanted to learn something, right? Now, that wasn't the reason they were, they were testing Jesus again. They, they still hadn't learned their lesson that they're never going to win this battle. And so they asked him again, and they said, Is it lawful for one, for one to divorce his wife for any cause? couple of thoughts about why they would ask a question like that. In that day and time, there were two major schools of thought. And one was that, yes, you can, a man can divorce his wife for any reason. You know, she burnt the biscuits, I don't like that, divorce her, get another wife. Doesn't matter what the reason was. Uh, the other uh, school of thought was, no, the only, the only reason a, a man could uh, put away his wife and be approved by God would be on, in, the, in the case of adultery. And so apparently both schools had a pretty good following, so it could be they say, well, either way he answers this, he's going to alienate somebody. Maybe that was the thought, or maybe they were just trying to get him to contradict Moses or maybe contradict what he himself had said back in the Sermon on the Mount. But for some reason they thought asking this question was going to trip him up in some way. So uh, what did he do? Did he go back to the old law? Let's talk about the old law and see what it says. He went back to the beginning. He said, now look, if you want to answer this question, let's go back all the way to the beginning when God first created the family. And let's just see what God had to say. He said, uh, uh, have you not read? See, this, these were supposed to be the Pharisees, people that really had read and understood the law. And, and knew what it was all about. These were the 
experts, right? I'm putting air quotes there. These were the experts. So have you not read? Didn't you go back and read what the Bible says? Here's what it says. Therefore, man, uh, well, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says, God saw that it's not good for man to be alone. I will create for, create for him a suitable helper. And then in verse 24, he said, For this cause a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then Jesus goes on to say, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the point in, in going back to the beginning is we see God's design. It's one man and one woman, male and female, he says there in verse 4. Those are the only two genders, and it's still today, right? When you're born, you're either male or female, and whatever that is, that's what you're going to be all of your life. Uh, drugs can't change that. Surgery can't change that. You're either a male or a female, and that's what you'll always be, contrary to what you hear on the news these days. But uh, So a man and a woman joined together in marriage, and he said, when God joins those, don't you dare separate what God has joined. Uh, if you want to see some more about God's attitude toward marriage, uh, look at uh, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14, beginning there. He's talking about some, some men here who had dealt treacherously with their wives. He says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. So you made a covenant, uh, an oath when you married that uh, you would uh, uh, love that wife and vice versa, and, and it's for life. But you've dealt treacherously with her. Now listen to this. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. So your attitude in dealing treacherously with your spouse, that attitude, that spirit, it didn't come from God. That's not where that kind of spirit comes from. And if it didn't come from God, there's only one other place that it's going to come from, right? This is God's attitude towards marriage. If you deal treacherously with your spouse, what you're doing, that kind of thing, it didn't come from God. It come from a, a worse place than much worse. And he goes on to say in verse 16, he says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. So that's God's original plan for marriage, and this is God's attitude for marriage. One man, one woman for life. So they come back in verse 7 then and say, well, why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Uh, if you're saying this, then it seems like you're contradicting Moses here. See, so maybe they think now, maybe they're going to win this argument. But he said in verse 8, uh, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. It was not so. See, Moses didn't command the, uh, the putting away, but what he did command, if you break God's original law and put, him, put your wife away, then you have to, to protect her. They had to write this certificate of divorce. And so because of the hardness of their hearts, God put up with that for a while. But he says from the beginning it wasn't so. That's not the way God intended things to be. It never was. It never was in his design. 
Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he makes the one exception here where that God will approve a divorce and a remarriage, that one and only uh, exception. In Mark's account, you'll have to turn over there, but in Mark chapter uh, 10 and verses 11 and 12, he shows us that this works both ways. It's not just the man putting away the wife, but it can go either way. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So that can go either way. That uh, wouldn't be uh, pleasing to God. You've, you've, you've broken the original uh, plan of marriage except for, for that, that one exception. And apparently uh, this putting away for just any reason was so embedded in, in their minds in that day and time that when he said that is his disciples there in verse 10, this is Matthew 19, verse 10, said, wow, I'm paraphrasing here. Boy, if it's like that, maybe it's just better not to marry. If I, if I can't just put my wife away whenever I want to, that, 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 that'd be hard. Maybe I just shouldn't marry. And so then he goes into some discourse here and, and to me, what I think he's saying in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12 there of Matthew chapter 19, he's saying uh, not everyone can receive this saying, and that saying, although there's some controversy about what he means there, I think he's talking about what he just said about marriage and divorce. Uh, if one can't receive that, then you're probably right. You probably should just not marry. That would be the best thing. If you can't abide by God's rules about marriage, then it would be better just to not marry. But, but God's uh, rule, the, it, that would be the exception. The rule is it's not good for man to be alone. You need a good wife. And the Proverbs talks about what a blessing a good wife is and all those kinds of things. So, but if you can't abide by that, then you better just, you better just not marry. So what would fix all of this is what uh, many passages talk about husband and wives and their attitudes and their feelings toward one another. I found that there's five words that the Bible uses, that God uses when he's talking about a husband and a wife and their attitudes toward one another. It's love, cherish, nourish, honor, and respect. Love, cherish, nourish, honor, respect. And you see that in a marriage and there won't be any problems with the divorcing and all that kind of, that'll be the way God intended it from the very beginning. Now that's, that's a huge subject and we've gone through it very quickly. And, uh, but do you have any, anybody, any comments or anything further? Let's do it God's way. One exception, but, uh, God's, God created marriage, and he has the authority, and he has the right to regulate that. Matthew chapter 19, down to verse 13 through 15. There were some children were brought to Jesus, and there he's preaching and teaching and healing and so forth, and the people brought these children. And so some of the disciples wanted to, to, to not let that happen. He said, oh, our Lord's too busy to deal with these children. Uh, in uh, Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, he said, but Jesus was indignant. He didn't appreciate them 
shooing away the children. He said, no, you let them come to me. And one of the reasons, I don't know all the reasons, but one of the reasons he wanted to let those children be there was because they teach us a very important lesson, right? If you look back at Matthew chapter 18, we won't turn there, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase this. His disciples have been discussing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so it said, Jesus called this child to himself. So we see what happened. He called that child and that child humbly came and obeyed. And he said, uh, you're thinking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you, unless you humble yourself like this child, you won't even be in the kingdom of heaven, let alone the greatest. And then he goes on to say, whoever humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be the greatest? You know, the world would say, okay, if you're the greatest, you're the one in authority, and you're the one with the type A personality, and you give commands and everybody, and you're the greatest. That's, he said, no, it's not like that in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is the humble and the servant. That's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark's account, in verse Mark 10, 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. If you don't receive the kingdom humbly like a child, you're not even going to be in it. So another lesson, how many times now has Jesus dealt with pride and humility? You think that's an important important subject you, you can't the, the, the lesson there as I see it is you can't get to heaven without humility you can't do it if we're not humble we're not going to have to worry about being the greatest in the kingdom because we're not going to be in the kingdom comments rich young ruler uh, this is found in Matthew Mark and Luke Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. Uh, and you kind of kind of put those together to get the rich young ruler of Matthew's account. He he's tells us that he had great possessions and that he was young. In Mark's account, he tells us that he had great possessions. And in Luke's account, he tells us he was a ruler and he was extremely wealthy. So you put all that together and you got a rich, rich young ruler. And uh, this rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he said, Teacher, what, must, what, uh, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So, you know, his, his thoughts are, are headed in the right direction, right? He wants to do what it would take uh, to inherit eternal life. And, and not only that, he went to the right place to find the answer, didn't he? So this rich young ruler is, is doing pretty good. He knows the right question to ask, and he knows the right person to ask to get the right answer. And so Jesus, in answering that without reading all of it, he just said uh, he started enumerating various uh, laws in, in the law of Moses. They were still living under the old law. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, bear false witness, and so forth. And he goes on to say, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. 
And the young man said, well, you know, I've done all that all my life. Uh, is there anything I still lack? And uh, Mark's account said Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this young man. And he loved his approach. And he said, well, there is one thing you lack. He said, knowing that he was wealthy, he said, you need to sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And of course, the young man was, went away sadly because uh, he was wealthy and he wasn't willing to give that up. So why, why did Jesus tell this young man, there's, there's one thing you still lack, you've got to sell everything you've got? Is this teaching us that, do you have a house? Do you live? Uh, I'm sorry, you've got to sell that. You've got a car you drive, mm -mm, you can't have that. You've got to sell that. Do you have a closet full of clothes? You get rid of those things. You can't have any of that. Is, that. is that the lesson here? Why did he tell this young man, you have to sell all that you have and come follow me? Jesus knew the man's heart. Jesus knew his heart, and he knew, unfortunately, in this man's heart, there was one thing he was putting before God. And that was his wealth. And so in this case, it was far better for him to get rid of the wealth and come and follow Jesus than to hang on to the wealth and be like you remember rich man and Lazarus, what happened to the rich man there. When he died, he lifted up his eyes in torment. So it would be better, as uh, an old preacher I used to know has passed on now, I used to say he'd be better off living out on the riverbank with nothing to wear but a boot and a shoe and uh, be a servant of the Lord than to be wealthy and spend your, your eternity in torment. And so Jesus, seeing the heart, understood what this young man lacked one more thing. The wealth meant too much to him. And, of course, there's, there's a great lesson uh, for us there, isn't it? Because we're probably uh, the uh, wealthiest people that's ever lived the face of the earth with all the blessings that we have from day to day. So we need to be sure that we use those, less, those uh, blessings properly and don't put them before God. And we're willing to, to use those, what did uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17, 18, 19, those that are rich to be generous and to share with the poor, that should be our attitude. We're always, always ready to share. Any comments there? We've got five minutes. Yes. Uh, he's, he's breaking your microphone. I just wanted to say that, um, you know, um, me and my mom, we will get um, leftovers sometimes from a restaurant or something, and we see people who have signs out saying that they need food or they need money or something so we give them a little bit of our food that we have left over from the restaurant or somewhere like that and the reason we do that is because um, I don't have much myself but I also know what it's like to um, live in a house where you don't have food or anything like, like that mm -hmm. so um, so if you show compassion to the poor and you show compassion to other people you know, people don't realize you can be in that situation quicker than what you think. And a lot of those people, it's not because they, they put themselves in that position, but it just happened to them. 
And so when you show compassion on those that may not look the same or, or are the same as you, then, then you truly are doing the mission of Jesus. We're blessed and we need to be. How many times have we already seen Jesus' compassion? And he quoted from Hosea 6 and verse 6, I, devi- I desire compassion and not sacrifice. We can do uh, attend every worship service and give of our means, every, but if we have no compassion, then, then our worship is worthless to him. So the disciples, then Peter said to him in reply, this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. uh, We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. Uh, I like what the way Mark words that. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. You're going to receive a lot more than whatever you gave up, but there are going to be some persecutions along too. And in the age to come, eternal life. And there will forget one time I was in Dayton, Ohio, away from home in some training, and I got really sick. And I had a class I had to go to that started at midnight. And I felt like I'd been run over by a truck. And there was an old couple, Milo and Rita Martz. They said, come home with us. And they fed me some soup for supper. Woke me up about 11 o'clock that night and gave me some cinnamon toast and some coffee and got me going and made me let me get to school on time. And boy, that was talking about another mother and father. <laughs> you gain a lot more as a child of God than you, than you ever give up. And also the, the greatest uh, blessing of all is uh, eternal life. I continue to remember Luke 14 and verse 14. He said, whatever you give up in this life, he said, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Whatever we give up for the cause of Christ, you haven't lost anything. In fact, it's, it's a gain. Any comments there? Matthew chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He went out early and he, he was hiring people to work in his, on his farm. And so he hired some people that were there early and then later on some more people came and he hired them and later on some more people came and he hired them. All through the day he kept hiring more people. And so by the end of the day he had agreed to pay them a certain amount. And at the end of the day he paid them all the same amount that he had agreed to pay. So some had worked all through the day and some had worked just a very short time. But they all received the same pay. Well, those that had worked a long time were kind of indignant about that. Wait a minute. That's not fair. Uh, uh, We've worked all day and you pay us this amount and this fellow worked just a short time and you paid him the same thing. Uh, how, how, How is that fair? You need to maybe pay us some more. To me, the, the, the thought there is that the reward 
is so great. I mean, it's going to be more so if we worked all day. The reward is greater than any, any service that we have uh, rendered, whether it be all day or for a short time. I think of examples here. Think about the Apostle Paul and all the years he preached the gospel and served God. And then think about the thief on the cross. Pretty vast difference there, wasn't it? said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But we should never be envious. I think uh, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But Galatians chapter 5, in the works of the flesh, two of those were jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy. Uh, when we get to heaven, I don't think there's going to be any hard feelings about any. There's going to be such a joy and such a blessing in the presence of God, how could we possibly be jealous because somebody maybe didn't sacrifice as much as I did or didn't have to serve as long as, how could there possibly be? I think that's the point. The reward is so, just look at the reward and let's don't be jealous and envious of one another. We ought to be, you see, that's, that's being like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son, right? Uh, he didn't like it because his brother came back and the father rejoiced at that. We ought to rejoice. We ought to be like the father. doesn't matter when a, when a soul is returned to the Lord, we ought to be happy whether he's served 50 years or five years or whatever it happens to be in this life. But rejoice that that soul has been saved. Well, we didn't get through lesson three. So next week, we're going to have to really, <laughs> really get moving. I'm going to try to get caught up. We'll take up there next week where uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus foretells his death on the road to Jerusalem. Pick up right there, Matthew chapter 20.